If you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. We are in the second half of chapter 14. Last week, we talked about tongues in the church, and this week, we get to prophecy and the church. And this is uh, no less of a difficult passage that we have to deal with today, uh, because Paul says a lot. He says a lot of challenging things in here for us. And how are we supposed to respond to this? How are we supposed to handle uh, the gift of prophecy within the local body? And that is what we're going to attempt to do today. I don't know if there are three words that have done more to divide, abuse, cause confusion or frustration, or lead more people astray than these three words. Are you ready for them? These three. God told me. How many times in your life have you heard someone say, man, God has told me that you should do X, Y, and Z. And if we are in a young or an impressionable stage or maybe a young Christian, man, we can take those words to heart. And if this person has spoken out of turn and the Lord has not revealed this to them, man, how much damage can that do? So we're going to read this passage together this morning. And when we read it, it's going to look as if Paul gives license for us to use these words. But we're going to look at four primary things that I will show us after we read this passage. We're going to start in verse 24, and we'll read through verse 40. Paul says this to the church at Corinth. He says, but if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying... They are convicted of sin and brought under judgment by all as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three uh, at most should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Or did the word of God originate with you? Or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. But if anyone ignores this, they themselves will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues, but everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So we have a lot to uncover 
in this passage today. If you've never read verses 36 and 38 about women keeping silent in church, your ears might be going up like, what in the heck is Paul talking about? We're going to cover that. We're going to get to all of it this morning. So buckle up and bear uh, with me as we work through this passage. We're going to look at four things primarily. Four things that we are going to seek to understand in this passage today. Here is the first one. The first thing that we are going to attempt to see is that the role of the prophet in the Old Testament and prophecy in the New Testament is not equal or the same. The role of the prophet in the Old Testament and prophecy in the New Testament are two different things. The second thing we're going to see is that prophecy is seen in the New Testament is not equal in its authority to Scripture. These are not necessarily God's words that are infallible and inscrutable. It's not equal to the authority of Scripture. The third thing that we're going to look to see is someone who prophesies should not be taken at their word. Their words and their character should be tested and weighted among the church. And then the last thing that we're going to look at is women in the church. What in the heck does Paul mean that women should remain silent? I mean, does he not see into 2023 in the culture that we live in today? We're going to look at the interpretive options for this challenging passage and see what clues in the context are there for us to know what Paul really means. So let's first start with this. The role of the prophet in the Old Testament and prophecy in the New Testament is not equal or the same. Some of the problem that stems from prophecy in the New Testament and how it applies to us in the church is that there is wide disagreement about what it is and what it means. Many Pentecostal or charismatic Christians answer that prophecy is a word from the Lord that brings God's guidance to specific details of our lives, gives personal edification, and brings to our times of worship an intense awareness of God's presence. So they seek this gift, and they seek a revelation or a word from the Lord. But there are others, other Christians who would say, no, this view threatens the unique authority of the Bible as God's completed word to us. And if you lean too heavily to that, it'll lead people to pay too little attention to Scripture and too much attention to unreliable forms of subjective guidance. How do you know if it's a word from the Lord or just what I'm thinking inside internally. Maybe it's just something that I feel or something that I want to do, and so I think it's a word from the Lord. How do we determine where that is laid out? They would say that the gift of prophecy, then, is the ability to speak or write God's very words, and we have the Bible, and that gift has ended with the New Testament when the New Testament was completed. So we have two primary views here. View one that... uh, Prophecy is God's word for us today still. And view number two, on the other side, that no, the canon is closed, scripture is completed, and we have God's final and authoritative word. So where should we land today? I'm going to propose today uh, that there's a third way, a middle ground that preserves what is really important to both sides, yet faithful to the teaching of the New Testament. Now, this, uh, what has helped me this week, I just want to point you to a work that I've read uh, multiple times this week. It's Wayne Grudem's uh, work, book, The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament. Uh, Wayne Grudem has written things like systematic theology. It's very accessible. Uh, it's not so scholarly that it's over our heads. It's very easy to read and to manage. But the first thing that I want us to see to understand that the role of the prophet in the Old Testament and prophecy in the New Testament is not equal or the same, we need to do this by defining terms. 
Who were the prophets of the Old Testament and what was their role? Prophets in the Old Testament, I believe I have this definition on the screen, yeah. The main function of prophets in the Old Testament, prophets were to be messengers from God sent to speak to men and women with the words of God. Millard Erickson goes on to define that the Old Testament prophet as divinely inspired foretelling. Some of it is predictive of the future, but all of it is representing a specially revealed message from God, a message that is authoritative, infallible, and recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it becomes scripture. This is the prophet of the Old Testament. Think of a prophet in the Old Testament much like an ambassador to a foreign country who carries a message from his president or prime minister. When they go to that foreign country, does that person think that they are the president? No. But the word that they carry has the same authority because it's coming from the president or prime minister of his own country. The message he delivers comes with the authority of the leader who sent him. So it is with the Old Testament prophets. They knew they were not speaking for themselves, but for God who had sent them. And they spoke with his authority. Let's look at a few examples. Haggai says this, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. We see Nathan in 2 Samuel. The Lord sent a message by Nathan the prophet. In 2 Kings, we see Isaiah. The Lord gave Isaiah the prophet a message to deliver to King Hezekiah. Often these messengers were sent with messages to remind Israel of the terms of their covenant with the Lord, calling disobedient people to repentance and warning of the penalty of disobedience that would be applied. So we see here in the Old Testament, the prophets were messengers of God, but we also see that the prophets Words are God's very words. The authority of God's messengers, the prophets, were not limited to general content or just the main idea of their message. Rather, they claimed repeatedly that their very words were God's words who had given them to deliver. Jeremiah 1.9 says, I have put my words in your mouth. Ezekiel 2.7 says, and you shall speak my words to them. We will see Old Testament prophets frequently saying things like, I will do this, or this will happen. They're speaking with very specific authority under God's name. And we see not only do the prophets, are they messengers of God, that the prophets' words are God's very words, we also see the prophets' words from God have divine authority. Deuteronomy 18.19 says, I will call to account anyone who does not listen to words the prophet speaks in my name. To disbelieve or disobey a prophet's words is to disbelieve or disobey God. Now, if we were to define prophecy in the New Testament as the same way as prophecy in the Old Testament, we would be very much out of bounds in that way. Because we see in the New Testament that there are those who have God's authority to speak, and they're not called prophets, they're called apostles. Let's look at what the apostle Paul says, for example, in Galatians 1.11. He says this, <clears throat> the gospel which was preached by me is not man's gospel, for I did not receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through revelation of Christ Jesus. Notice the parallel between who receives the message and who the message comes from. 
So the prophets in the Old Testament, when they spoke, who did their message come from? God. The apostles, when they spoke, who did their message come from? The Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament itself does not seem to make the case, or there is actually very little evidence or no evidence at all for a group of prophets in the New Testament who speaks with God's authority, divine authority. But we do see that the apostles speak with this authority. Consider Peter when he encourages his readers to remember the commandment of the Lord and Savior taught through your apostles in 2 Peter. Paul commends the Thessalonians for accepting the very word of God which you heard from us and for receiving it not as a word of men but as it really is the word of God. Do you see the parallel? Paul is saying, when we spoke to you, you did not accept it as my word but as God's word. This has divine authority within the apostles. So here we see a very close parallel to the Old Testament uh, Old Testament prophetic authority. Anyone who disobeyed Paul's instructions would be disobeying a command from the Lord. Consider 1 Thessalonians 4.8. He says, Paul says this to this church. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God. Paul sees his very words as having this type of authority. 1 Corinthians 14, we see Paul's response where he says, if anyone thinks that they're a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge then that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. We see in the New Testament this role of declaring authoritative, specially revealed truth from God is not played by the prophet, but by the apostle. Prophecy as seen in the New Testament is not equal in its authority to Scripture. Wayne Grudem says this, the Bible identifies as prophets in the New Testament as ordinary Christians who spoke not with absolute divine authority, but simply to report something that God had laid on their hearts or brought to their mind. There are many indications in the New Testament that this ordinary gift of prophecy had authority less than that of the Bible and even less than that of recognized Bible teaching in the early church. How do we know that? How can we see that? First, we see in the Old Testament, prophecy in the Old Testament was accepted as God's word. No one could go up against the prophet and say, no, nah, I don't believe that. You could go up against it, but it would not go well for you. But here we see that prophecy is not to be blindly accepted, but tested. And this is in contradiction to the role we see in the Old Testament prophets. 1 Corinthians 14 says, let two or three prophets speak, and then let the others weigh what is said. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, do not despise prophesying, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. 1 John says, dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So what is the test that we see that they are to weigh or judge or sift the prophecy? If someone comes and says, man, I feel like the Lord is leading us in this way, we are to say, okay, that might very well be the case, but let's test it and see. How are we to test it and see? Well, Paul gives us instructions. First, we saw in 1 Corinthians 12, does the person that is claiming to speak 
a message from the Lord, do they accept Jesus as the one from God? Or is their message antithetical to the gospel? Acts 17, you have a group called the Bereans who examined and tested everything that Paul said under the scriptures. Does someone that is speaking, do they accept the message of Jesus and the apostles? Is what they're saying good? Does it pursue love? Does it build up the church? Is it timely and orderly? These are all instructions from Paul. How are we to receive a word from someone in the church? Next, we see here that prophecies in the New Testament are not to equal weight or authority of prophecies in the Old Testament because prophecies in the New Testament were often intentionally neglected. Look at 1 Corinthians 14.20. Paul seems to indicate if someone stands up in the church and they are giving a prophetic word or prophecy and someone is sitting nearby, they have one, they are to stand up and the other one is to sit down and be quiet. Paul seems to have no real concern that what the first person is saying may be lost. Second, we see Paul has no concern that what is being said should be recorded. You see how important that is. Paul doesn't take what's being said in the church that it should be recorded and remembered and recited and hidden in their hearts as a divinely inspired word from God. Paul doesn't hold these words from these people with this type of weight. D.A. Carson says this, When Paul presupposes in 1 Corinthians 14 that the gift of prophecy depends on a revelation, we are not limited to a form of authoritative revelation that threatens the finality of the canon. To argue in such a way is to confuse the terminology of Protestant systematic theology with the terminology of the scripture writers. It's clear from these passages that the prophets within the church had less authority than an apostle, and most certainly less authority than the apostle Paul. Remember what Paul said, if anyone thinks that they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. So what's happening in the church is that these men who or women who believe that they have a spiritual gift of prophecy within the church, they have come against a word of what Paul has said, or they're doing things differently than what Paul has instructed, and they've written in this letter, And Paul says, no way, I'm not listening to it. I have the final authority, and let what I am saying be to you is what God's word is. Paul does not submit himself to the prophets within the Corinthian church. Furthermore, in Acts 21, we see a prophecy that Paul deliberately disobeys. In this passage in Acts 21, Paul is nearing the third end, uh, the end of his third missionary journey, and his ship lands at a port city of Tyre when they had to wait several days. And this is what it says. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. Through the Spirit, they told Paul not to go on the journey to Jerusalem. And when our days were there, were ended, we departed and we went on our journey. What appears to be happening here is that Paul doesn't see this word of these prophets as a word from the Lord that is infallible and to be listened to completely. It is plausible that they had a revelation to the suffering that Paul would face at Jerusalem, and this was their natural warning. But what Paul doesn't do is he does not take these words as prophetic authority. 
And what Paul does not do is he does not disobey a word from the Lord by continuing to go on to Jerusalem because prophets in the New Testament do not have God's divine authority. Prophecy was an active part of the Corinthian church, and Paul encourages them and the other churches to desire to seek and to build up the church. What was our main point last week is that the gifts of the Spirit were to build up the church. Paul says this at the top of 14, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. What is the primary purpose of prophecy? In verse three, it's this. The one who prophesies speaks to people for their edification, their encouragement, and their consolation. So consider it this way. Consider prophecy in a form that might take this way. Have you ever been just like burdened in your spirit or just felt like the Lord was leading you to make a phone call to a friend that you hadn't spoke to in a long time to encourage them through a difficult season of life? Or maybe to give them a word of encouragement like you felt like the Lord was pushing you to just draw near to a friend through a season. What is the role of prophecy? Edification and encouragement. People, though, who claim to have a divine word from the Lord that says, the Lord has said, or the Lord is telling me, or I am a prophet, or I am an apostle, or I have a new word from the Lord, mark and avoid these people as false prophets. These are not words from the Lord. This is not the authority we see given to people in the church at Corinth. Paul's going to continue on and say, if even an angel, if an angel comes and tells you something contradictory to what I've told you, it is false. Paul sees his words as divinely inspired and authoritative. That's why we can take people like Joseph Smith, who has created an entire different religion that is not Christianity. It claims to be closely associated with uh, Christianity and Mormonism, that this is not a new received revelation. Joseph Smith has been deceived. He is not a prophet. He does not have a divinely inspired word from the Lord. Scripture has been closed with the apostles and their authority. So how are we to believe that this plays out in the life of the church today? First, I believe it's to to take place with, with great humility. Even if we sense that the Lord is leading us somewhere, I I don't think that we should go as far as to say, hey, man, the Lord's telling me this about you. If you look at some of the sermons uh, from Charles Spurgeon, uh, there is recorded instances where he's been given a sermon and then he stops in the middle of a sermon and he calls out this one man that is wearing white gloves and he says, you have stolen those gloves and you need to go repay that. Or he calls out another man that says, you charged nine pence when it should only be four pence. You've robbed from that person. And these people, at the end of their sermon, they've said, I don't know how this man would know these things. This is potentially an instance of a prophetic word from the Lord where we see the conviction of sin to be laid bare. It's exactly what Paul says in verse 25. So how should we see that these gifts of the Spirit exist today? First, they exist to desire the pursuit of love and building up the church. If they do not do these things, if it does not come with the comfort and peace of the Holy Spirit, 
If it does not inspire fear and humility of the Lord, then we need to check these things. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, one of our family members, it was my um, grandmother's sister, Aunt Gladys, Uncle Jack and Aunt Gladys. And they were, when we talked about them in the family, we always talked about them with a little bit of awe and respect because they were IMB missionaries to Thailand. And they served over there for years. And one year, on Aunt Gladys' birthday, she and Uncle Jack, they loaded up all their kids and they went down to the beach to have a picnic to celebrate. Now, what is unknown to us is uh, the ministry of the WMU. Do you know the WMU, the Women's Missions Union? And what the WMU does every year is on an IMB missionary's birthday, they'll have that and they'll be praying specifically for that person throughout the day. So unbeknownst to Aunt Gladys, throughout this whole day, she has women back in the States who are praying specifically for her throughout this day. So they get to the beach. They unload all of their stuff. They get all the kids out there. They set up the picnic, get everything out. They sit down. And you know what Aunt Gladys says? I feel like we need to move. I feel like the Lord is telling us that we need to move from this spot further on down the beach. Now, if I'm Uncle Jack, and we just unloaded all, you could sense like his frustration. We got four kids, six and under. This is no small task to get these kids loaded up and back in the car. But what do they do? They pick it all up. They pack up. They go into the car. They drive a couple of miles down the beach. They get out again. They load it all up. Did you know? Well, you don't know because I'm telling you the story. But <laughs> an hour later, there was a plane crash right where they were at. They would have killed their entire family. I'll tell you another story of a missionary who was working in an orphanage. In a remote jungle, one night a mother delivers a child in the middle of the night without any modern technology. I mean, it's like third, third world in this jungle. The missionary was there to help deliver the baby, but sadly during childbirth, the mother died. So they had this problem. They were grieving that the mom had died, but then they had to keep the baby warm. They had to keep the baby alive, and the mother was no longer there to keep the baby alive. So what they had were hot water bottles, and they'd fill these hot water bottles up, and they'd lay it near the baby to keep them warm through the night. So the missionary sends one of her coworkers to go uh, back to the orphanage to get a hot water bottle, and about an hour later, she comes back in tears, and she says, the hot water bottle has burst, and it's our last one. She says, well... There's no use of crying over spilt milk. Like, we just do what we have to do. And so they did. They took what they could with rotations during the night by the fire to keep the baby warm. And the next morning, the baby survived. But the missionary, she goes to the orphanage to talk to all the little girls about what had happened that last night and to pray with them. And she does this every morning. She prays with the young girls every morning. Now, what is really heartbreaking breaking about this story is the mom that had died, she had an older daughter that was also in the orphanage there. So in that group that morning, uh, the missionary asks if any of the little girls want to, play, to pray. And she says, as only uh, a little girl could in the jungle prays, she prayed this, Jesus we need you to send a hot water bottle or the baby will die. And also, would you send my friend a dolly 
so that you know that Jesus loves her. The missionary recounting the story says that she could hardly utter out the words, amen, because she knew how ridiculous of a prayer this was. Who's going to send the hot water bottle to the jungle? Much less, who's going to send anything to them in the jungle? They hardly got any packages ever. Well, that afternoon, she's teaching in the orphanage, and she gets a message that a parcel has come to her house. And so not thinking anything of it, she goes and gets the parcel, and she brings it back to the orphanage because she wants to open it up in front of all the children because they hardly ever got anything. And she she does so slowly because they need to save all the paper, all the string. They need to make sure everything they have is secure. When she opens up the box, it's full of jerseys that the kids can wear, and she starts passing them out, and the kids love it. They go insane, and she digs her hand in deeper, and you know what she pulls out? It's a hot water bottle. And the little girl that said the prayer, you know what she says? Go back in the box. There's going to be a dolly in there too. The missionary does, and you know what she pulls out? It's a little doll. What are we to make of these things? What she later found out is that one of the churches associated uh, with her mission, seven months prior, or actually a year prior, they were packing this box. And someone said that they felt inclined by the Lord to put a hot water bottle in that package and to put a dolly in there as well. Now, are we to write these things down and recite them as scripture to ourselves? No. But do you know what they do for us? And they encourage, they edify, and they console the body. How has the Lord spoken to you in your life through members of the church or of the body to encourage, edify, or console you. And these are just stories from here. I mean, ask Eric about some of the stories that he's experienced as growing up in the faith. I'll tell you another story real briefly. Um, What time is it? Okay. In 2017, Jessica and I uh, were moving from Pineville to uh, Grant Parish. My grandparents had passed away. And we just felt the call to be involved in a local church here. And for whatever reason, well, not for whatever reason, my grandfather had passed away, and I was, we, he, we had the funeral here, and I was standing in the foyer out there, and I thought, you know, I could see us at Alpine. Like, why not? Like, I just felt sense that, you know, maybe that the Lord might lead us here. We'd come check out this church when we moved out there. So a few months go by. That was in October. In the spring, I send an email to the former pastor, Lucas, and I said, hey, listen, I hear y'all looking for a worship pastor. I'm not very good, but I can get you by. If you need anybody, uh, I'd be happy to do that. And so we met, and um, long story short, I came in in October of 2018. Now, fast forward to the spring of 2019. Uh, Lucas comes to me and our former elder, Chad, who's since moved to Texas, and he's telling us, man, I'm feeling burnout. I feel like we need to take a break. And we said, man, Lucas, you do what you need to do. Go take six months, three months, a month, whatever it is, you go and take that. We'll cover for you when you come back. Man, we got your back. We're going to move on and and rock on. So he does. He he takes a, a month sabbatical in the month of July, and I preach for us in that month of July. Now, um... During that month, I'm working in insurance and uh, doing music here on the side. I'm sitting in my insurance office, and you know who walks in my office? It's Brother Pete LaBeouf. 
he walks in and he sits down and he looks at me and he says, John, I think you're supposed to be the next pastor at Alpine. And I said, Brother Pete, let me stop you right there. I'm not. Lucas is our pastor. I support Lucas 100%. He goes, you don't, you're misunderstanding me. He said, I love Lucas. I think Lucas is supposed to still be here, but I just sense that the Lord has you to be our, our next pastor. And I said, I, I appreciate that. That means a lot, but I'm in no way. Uh, I, I don't think that this is the case. Um, Lucas is our pastor, and I support him 100%. What he didn't know is about a week prior, I had had a dream one night. And I don't mean this to sound hooky or spooky or anything like that. This is the only time it's ever happened to me in my life like this. I had a dream that me, Lucas and I were driving in his truck going north on 167, and he looks at me and he says, John, you're supposed to be the next pastor at Alpine. And I looked at him and said, I don't know about that. And he said, yep, you're supposed to be the next pastor. And I said, well, what about music? He said, you can do that too. And then all of a sudden, I wake up from my dream. Now, I tell two people about this. I tell Eric Johnson, and Eric goes, yep, yeah, it's a weird dream. There's nothing to it. I said, I know there's nothing to it. It's just weird. I told Jessica, and she said the same thing. There's nothing to it. It's just weird. At the end of that sabbatical, I get a call from Lucas. He says, what are you doing? I said, I'm, uh, I'm not doing anything. He said, well, let's go have lunch. And so we met at the Red River Grill. We sit down. I said, how was your trip? You recharged. You're ready to come back. Did you hear from the Lord? And he goes, yep. He goes, actually, I feel like I have heard from the Lord. He said, you're supposed to be the next pastor at Alpine. And me and my family are moving to Lake Charles. And I said, I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know. And I told him about the dream. We had a good laugh about that. And I said, well, look, here's the last thing that I want to do. I, I do not want to insert myself in this role uh, that says, hey, John had a dream, and Lucas thinks this, and y'all should accept it. In fact, we didn't say anything about that to anyone uh, just amongst ourselves. We just let the process play out. What I didn't know, what I didn't know, is that after one of the Sundays that I preached, Kevin Billiot calls Lucas and says, you know, I think John's supposed to be the next pastor at Alpine. And Lucas says, who have you talked to? And he goes, I didn't talk to anybody. I'm just telling you what I think. And he said, well, here's what's actually starting to happen. I don't share this story uh, to, like, say, Hey, look at us and look at how this has happened. Nothing in my life has ever happened like that, ever. Is this a divinely inspired word by God? Absolutely not. This is not something that we record down as scripture, but is this possibly what we see as a spiritual gift or a grace gift from the Lord for us to see how the Lord might be leading us in a season at Alpine? Absolutely. Does this mean because I had a dream and a couple of other men affirmed it that this means that I'm the pastor forever and always and no one can ever come up against me? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The Lord can take me out of this position just as quickly as he's inserted me into it. But what I want to encourage you to see is that the Lord can use you to encourage, edify, and console believers. And this could be a gift of prophecy for you in a specific season, during a specific time. It could be that you have a word of encouragement from the Lord that comes from the scriptures to convict someone of sin, to lovingly call them to repentance. Paul tells us to pursue these gifts that build up the church and in love. So how should we how should we test these things? Again, we, we should test them by the word. The word has the final authority. If it's something that's contrary to the word, then we just mark and avoid it. 
Second, we test it by the congregation, by the church. If we feel like we have a word from the Lord, who is to weigh it? It's the church. It's the church. So, moving on, before we get to points of application for us, let us deal with this portion of the text in 34 and 35, where Paul says this, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. These sound like harsh words from Paul. And there are four various interpretations for this passage that I just want to walk you through briefly about how we could seek to start understanding these words from Paul. I'm going to tell you a little bit about them, but then I also want to give you the challenges of these passages in interpreting it this way. The first one is a subordinationist reading, uh, which means that this interpretation is a literal reading of the text. Women stay quiet and submit to your own husbands. This text has been used to limit the role of women in the church and to argue for literally silencing them. Okay. There are challenges with this interpretation. The first challenge is this. It's obvious, it is obvious from our study in 1 Corinthians that Paul didn't expect women to be completely silent. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul tells women to pray and prophesy and practice their spiritual gifts. So a literal reading of this text would contradict what Paul has said earlier in chapter 11. Second, we see this challenge within the text. It says that women should remain silent, and if they want to understand, that they should ask their husbands. But we read in 1 Corinthians 7 that not all women are married. And Paul doesn't tell them to get married so that they can understand or have a husband to teach them. In fact, he tells them, for some of you, it's better not to get married so that you can continue on in the work of the gospel. So this, again, it contradicts the text because if they have no husband, is it only the married women who have to keep silent but the unmarried women who can speak? The next challenge of this interpretation is what's referred to as the law. He says, as the law says. This would be referring to the Torah. The challenge here is that there is no law in the Torah that says women are not allowed to speak and must be in submission. Those are the challenges with that interpretation. The second, people think that maybe this is a cultural reading. Some people, in an attempt to soften the blow of this passage and make it more acceptable, is to argue that this is a contextual command about some talkative married women and does not apply to all women. In other words, these women were gossiping or being rude when they gathered uh, together as a church and they argue that the women would have been sectioned off in the assembly, and instead of listening, they were chatting. And instead of listening, they were chatting, they needed to be quiet, and then ask their husbands at home what they should be doing. The challenges with this interpretation is that this is guessing. We're just guessing that this could be a situation or a circumstance within the church. We do not have Paul's first, uh, we don't have the church's letter to Paul that says, this is what's going on. More so, what made the Christian movement so radical 
is that both Jew and Gentile, slave and free, male and female, were invited to the table to participate in the gathering. So it doesn't make an entire lot of sense that women would be segregated off when they are now seen as one to come and gather to the table. The third interpretation of this passage is interpolation, in which means this, that these, uh, this view believes that these aren't the original words by Paul, but that they have been added later. And the argument makes some sense because as we read this passage, this verse seems to come out of nowhere. In fact, if you removed these verses from this passage, the flow of the text would actually read a lot smoother. And so they argue this has been added later. And there is some textual evidence that this could be the case. I had a picture. I forgot to put it in. I'm sorry. Uh, I can put it on Facebook or something. Where we see in one of the earlier manuscripts that we have that scribes have dotted these verses to show that something is going on here. So we have from older manuscripts uh, that something is happening here, and the scribes are trying to alert us at what is going on. And they use this evidence to support their claim that someone has added this in later. Challenges to this is we don't have the original text, so we don't know if that's the case. That might be the case, and there's been some good scholarly work on this, and much more than I have time for us to go through today, uh, but we simply, we just don't know. We, have, we, do, we do not know. And the last uh, view is that this is a disagreement within the Corinthian church. And Paul is responding to this within this letter. And this also makes sense. Because we have seen earlier in the letter to Corinthians that Paul often does respond to something that they've said. We see this in 1 Corinthians 7 where he'll repeat a word or a phrase from their letter and then he'll respond. And so some scholars say this is exactly what's happening here. Paul is responding, uh, Paul is repeating what they're saying, women are not allowed to speak in the church, and Paul's response is, did the word of God originate with you? And that can make some sense, we, we see that. And the challenge again, is that we do not have this letter from the Corinthians to Paul, and it breaks the normal flow of how he's responded in the letter previously. So what do we do now? So how do we... How do we handle it? I mean, I've just given you four interpretations, and it seems like maybe I've not cleared the water at all in how we should handle this. So whenever I get to situations like this in my life, when maybe I'm going through a season of anxiety or difficulty or knowing what to do, what I like to do for myself is to repeat what I do know. Repeat what I do know, and then move from there. So what do we know? We know this. Jesus was radical in more ways than one. If claiming to be God wasn't radical enough, something that would have been astonishing is the role that he allows women to play in his ministry. For at the end of the gospel, where Mary is the first forerunner to go back and tell the disciples that she has seen the risen Jesus, scholars have said there is no way that if you were making up a story about the resurrected Messiah that you would have a woman proclaiming this message because no one would believe you. Women were not taken at their word in the first century. So for this to be included, it must have happened. Second, we see from Paul's own letter, if this was to be read at face value, he would be contradicting his own words where he instructs women in chapter 11 to pray and prophesy. 
Furthermore, we see in the early church where women were prophets. Acts 21, it says this, when we had uh, finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemy, and we were greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. It's clear in Scripture that there are women who prophesy. And this is not taken in Acts 21 to be seen as a bad thing, but that women had this role in the church. In Romans 16, we see the role of Phoebe, who people believe delivered the letter to the Romans. We see the role of Prisca, Junia, Judea, and Syntyche. We see women taking an active role in the church. So what we do know is that we can't take this passage at face value and look at our women and say, do nothing. Stay silent. This is contradictory to what we see in the rest of Scripture. But this can bring about some problems for us, like, because we want, to be, uh, we want to follow Scripture rightly. And if you followed our own convention, the SBC, you will have seen that we, uh, the SBC has just voted that Rick Warren's church, Saddleback, is no longer a cooperating member within our uh, convention because they have women as pastors. So what about that? We also see very clearly in Scripture where Paul talks about the role of elder pastor being only for men and not women. That women are not to have authority over men. So how are we to balance these two things? Here's one way that we can balance it. Who has the authority and the prophecy in the New Testament? Is it the person speaking? No. It's the church. The church weighs the words. So for a woman to prophesy or pray within the church does not mean that they have authority that's to be unquestioned or unchallenged. It does not mean that they are elevated to the status of elder or pastor. We see that clearly in Scripture as being reserved for men. But we also see that women have a vital role to play in the life of the church and that they are needed. Women, hear me clearly say, in the life of Alpine, you are needed. You're needed to pray, to prophesy, to encourage, to console, to do the work of the Spirit and acts of mercy, generosity, hospitality, all of these things, the gifts of the Spirit are available to you and you are needed in this role in the church. So to close, I, I just want to give some pastoral word of wisdom here. Let us then remove from our vocabulary, God told me. Let's just let that rest. Let's just put it off to the side. Because when we say things like God told me, it's easy for us to swing all the way to the Old Testament prophets and think, man, is this an infallible, inspired word by God? And someone who does not understand the difference between an Old Testament prophet and New Testament prophecy might think that. And it might cause great confusion for them. So let's just remove it from our vocabulary completely that God told me. What should we do? We should humbly Seek the Spirit to lead and guide us. Paul tells us to seek the gifts that build up the church. And you may wonder, well, where are the gifts at today? Have we seen it within our body? 
Well, the question should be, have you sought the gifts? Have you sought a way that you can be hospitable, merciful, an encourager? Are you actively seeking where the Spirit is working within our body and where you can come along and participate? Remember, to seek the gifts of the Spirit, what is key for us to understand that we saw earlier is that the Lord determines how and when the gifts are distributed. If you receive a gift from the Spirit, it's not like a gift that you control. It's a gift of grace to be used at a time because they are manifested from the Lord. And these gifts are not to give you authority. They are to build up the body because you never had authority. And that's a wonderful thing. I've never had authority. The ultimate authority comes from Christ Jesus. Hebrews says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe first by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Jesus Christ has the authority over this church and over our lives. The wonderful thing is that Jesus Christ has authority to forgive your sins. Jesus Christ has authority over the grave, and he has authority over his church. And he desires for his church to be built up to make his name known for his glory and for our good. If we're ever tempted to see prophecy as a way to make my name known, to build myself up, we are out of bounds. What does it say about the church and this last thing in Acts, the early church? Is that they, as they exercised the gifts of the Spirit together, they walked under the fear of the Lord in the comfort of the Spirit. So as we wrestle with these words from Paul today, let us walk in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Spirit together. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray um, that we can come to your word with humility and seeking to understand what it means uh, to follow you in the pursuit of love and the building up of your church. Let us never um, keep us from becoming haughty or prideful or boastful. Keep us from becoming arrogant in the way that we think that we have knowledge or understanding. But Father, let us wrestle with these words from Paul that we boast not in anything that we do. We only boast in the cross of Christ and what Christ has accomplished. So Father, I pray that if there's anyone here that is in sin, that needs to repent, I pray that by your spirit you give us, give us this gift of grace to convict them of their sin. And Father, to come and be restored under your good gospel by your son. Jesus, I pray that as we come to the table today, that we proclaim your death over our lives and the washing of your blood over us and what that means for us as we gather as this church and move forward. So Jesus, I pray that you lead us, that we pursue love, and that we build up the church by your spirit. 
It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.